Hello, welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. We're here to discuss not only the uh, politics of political tribes and COVID, but also some of the psychology behind the um, politics at the moment. And to help us with this, we have a very special guest, Dr. Corey Clark. What better time to discuss the psychology of politics than in the midst of the worst global pandemic for 100 years? So, Corey, please introduce yourself and uh, tell our listener or listeners uh, who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Corey Clark, and I am in a weird transition phase right now. Uh, just recently, I was assistant professor of social psychology at Durham University in the UK, um, and now I am the director of academic engagement for Heterodox Academy in New York. And then in the fall, I'll be starting as a visiting faculty scholar at NYU in the business school. So I'm a little bit all over the place, but I'm a social scientist and I study politics and morality. Um, within the political realm, I study tribalism and political bias and how our group commitments to, say, our political party affect the ways we evaluate information and evaluate other people. So I'm really excited to be here today. Uh, and I hope, you know, I can I can give you guys some good information about what's going on. Fantastic. That sounds absolutely perfect. Uh, Steve, would you like to declare your interest? Oh, yeah. So um, I, I have a very amateur interest in psychology. So I did a psychology undergrad degree, and I actually came across Corey's podcast um, and listened to it, and I uh, thought, this is great. This is like psychology and philosophy and politics and things. And so I thought, uh, wouldn't it be great to uh, invite her on the show? Um, uh, but, yeah, I did an undergrad degree in psychology, and I have a bit of an interest in uh, something we might talk about a bit in the podcast around behavior change and how psychology is used by policymakers and things. So uh, I, th that's my sort of amateur interest. Excellent. Well, fantastic. Let's get started then. Let's start with COVID-19. It is dominating all aspects of just about everyone's lives at the moment for all sorts of terrible reasons. As part of the crisis, we've been asked to make some quite profound changes to our lives, and we'll come to ex examine the psychology behind the public reaction. But first of all, Steve, how well do you think the public have been following the guidance that's been put out? It seems they've been following it very well from what I've, what I've seen. So um, we have the so daily press briefing at five o'clock, of course, and often the chief scientific advisor sort of stands up and gives a slideshow. In the beginning of that, he talks about the transport stats, and they're, they're pretty encouraging. The train use is down 95% since the middle of March, and bus use down 75%. So that's a pretty good indication. I think people are sticking to the rules. Um, other bits and pieces I've seen, uh, one poll by YouGov, I uh, said that over 90% of people are supportive of the lockdown, so certainly saying that they're in support of the policy. Uh, and even going back to sort of uh, early March time, when the government started saying, wash your hands and things like that, there was some, some polling saying that at least half people were saying they're doing that. So I think the, perhaps the signs are that people are sticking to the rules maybe more than um, we expected. So, Corey, why have people been so um, so willing to follow the guidance so diligently and make such profound changes to their lives? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it probably depends 
where you're located and how serious the consequences are of violating those rules in countries where you can actually be severely punished for breaking them. People will follow them better probably out of fear. Um, however, in places where these rules are more optional, I, I think there are a number of things going on. One, um, maybe we'll discuss this, but there's been a lot of shaming happening from other people um, posting this person, look at these kids that are hanging out at the bar. They went on spring break um, and public shaming, although I'm not necessarily condoning it is a really an effective way to get people um, to not do the thing that they're doing um, because people don't like being shamed publicly. So there's some of that going on. Um, then there probably is an element of just genuine concern. And it, it, that, that figure you gave 90% of people think that there should be a lockdown. That's, that's news to me, actually. I, I hadn't heard that one. Um, so there are a lot of people who just really are genuinely concerned, particularly those who have elderly relatives and have a sort of personal interest in making sure this goes as smoothly as possible. Um, so probably a lot of different reasons, but I am happy to hear that people are doing a pretty good job. <laughs> Do you mind if we just examine some of the things that you touched on there? So we've seen examples of people disobeying the guidance. The, uh, these are often been posted on whether social or more traditional forms of media. These are the sunbathers in the park, people at outdoor, at outdoor markets. So what is the most effective way to sort of present guidance in a way that encourages the public to follow? So basically, should this be a focus on um, those who are following the guidance, i.e. showing pictures of empty parks, which I've seen some of the TV programs are similar to, or should it be a focus on those who are not following it? like you say, that sort of public shaming of those who are not um, doing as they are asked, which is the most effective, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, incentives help in general in, in both directions, right? The case in when you're, when you're showing, look, people are following the rules, no one's at the park, that's not really incentivizing any individual behavior, but it is displaying a norm, and it's saying this is what everyone else is doing and people don't like to violate norms um, for social reasons. So, you know, people have a tendency to conform and a lot of the time that's actually a good thing. Um, and then on the other hand, when you have the public shaming, you're calling out individuals. And though I don't know that necessarily will change that individual's behavior so much, it does send a message to other people that if you go out and do this, you might be the next, tar next target of the angry mob. So that probably... Um, I guess, like, scares people a little bit into following the rules. Steve? Um, just to make it even more complicated, this is a bit of a free rider problem with this particular issue around pandemics and things. And I've heard some of this talk about with vaccination rates and things as well for other diseases. But the idea that if everyone else is following the rules, there's actually less need for you to, is something people could mm -hmm. interpret. So, again, then if you show the empty park, people think, well, actually, it's okay, the park's empty, everyone else is obeying the rules, the virus is not going to spread. I can just go and sunbathe or whatever the sort of um, taboo thing is. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there's almost certainly an element of that. That's something I've heard people saying um, who are going to the store multiple times a week. And they're like, well, everyone's wearing a mask. So it's pretty much safe. It's fine. Uh, so when other people take these measures, it kind of entitles you to be less cautious yourself. Um, and can we maybe then 
touch on the psychology of why people don't follow the guidance, given the severity of not not following the guidance and therefore potential infection, not just for themselves but for other people around them and touched on elderly relatives and sort of other people. So what's the sort of psychology, if you can, about why people don't do as they're asked? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, there, This is another one that probably differs for different people. So it seems to me that um, a lot of what's been shown is people who are younger and they maybe would be less likely to follow the rules because they're less at risk. So for them, it's not as big of a deal. Um, although I actually have just been analyzing some data on this rule following behavior and what I found, um, to be surprising to me was that age was pretty much unrelated to rule following behavior. So people who are older were very, very like the, the effect size in terms of the relationship between being of older age and following the rules was very, very small. So, um, and that's interesting because, nope, fascinating <laughs> because uh because you'd think people who are more, more vulnerable should be following the rules more but it could be another thing like it's a trade-off uh, older people might think you know i have a few years left to live i'm not going to live it in solitary confinement um so probably there are different reasons for different people as to why they wouldn't follow the rules steve what do you think are the most effective ways for let's say governments, for example, to actually get through to the people who are not as um, sort of strictly obeying the guidance? Oh, I think tricky, tricky question. Um, I think one thing they're starting to get right, and they didn't in the first place, they're making things really, really clear. I remember the early stages where there was quite a lot of confusion about what you had to do, what you were advised to do. And I think when people aren't clear about things, there's going to be problems. The other thing is that you need to repeat things and be really clear to get cut through. We've probably got to that stage now. But, um, you know, you, all the three of us probably follow this kind of religiously. We've been obsessed with the sort of news and TV, like has to be our other things. But most people have other interests in other lives. And, and, and I think whenever you run other kind of political campaigns or government campaigns, you realize you've got to keep saying the same thing again and again. So some of it is just make sure you get through to people. Um, the rest, I, I couldn't tell you the answer. I suspect that different messages and different mediums are going to work for different people. So the government's smart. It'll be thinking about that, segmenting its kind of audience, and then testing things. Um, I don't know, though, whether they're doing that or whether they're just going to sort of stick to the quite blunt messaging that I think we notice more. But um, you obviously hear a lot about micro-targeting, use social media and all that kind of stuff. Probably there's something in that for the last, like, small number of people that aren't following it, if it's worth it. But... Um, that's all I'd say. So why, Corey, are so many people so keen to criticise others? <laughs> now, I suppose I would um, say that in one part it makes great sport. It has been <laughs> highly entertaining to spend time uh, looking out of the window and seeing people who are not doing sufficient amounts of distancing as they're sort of whether walking up or often jogging up and down the road. And we can be very British about it and tuck at them for not following the guidance. But is there anything sort of deeper than that 
other than we just need a new hobby. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of things going on. I, one is, I think there's some genuine anger because this is a collective action problem and you pointed out the problem with the free riding already. So if I'm taking all these measures, I've shut down my life, I'm not having any fun and I see you doing that, it's kind of like, you know, I'm paying a price for your freedom and people don't like that. In terms of shaming other people, why do people do this publicly? It's a way to signal to other people that you're not that kind of person. So by pointing out what other people are doing that you disapprove of, you're telling everyone like, look, I would never do this horrible thing. Look how great of a person I am. I am a team player. I'm someone who's following the rules. Um, so it's kind of a way to demonstrate to other people that you're you're one of the good ones, right? And that you're somebody that people should like and respect. So, Steve, this sort of call-out culture, do you think it's going to help the sort of social distancing effort or potentially hurt it? Well, it might actually do neither because just thinking about how much this happens on Twitter, I suspect the networks where people are sort of outraging about this stuff are exactly the networks of people who they're outraging against just aren't going to be going. Um, uh, because people seem to sort of agree so sort of violently. Um, but assuming others do sort of notice it, I, I, t- I think I sort of tend to agree with Corey that people probably won't, um, you know, if, some, if someone directly is called out, they'll probably react to that confrontationally and not be, not be affected. Um, it is really hard more broadly, like we, were, like we were saying a minute ago, to know which way the kind of, kind of double-edged sword of the kind of social norms goes. Is it that the park is empty so I can go or... The park is empty, so um, I better be like everyone else, obey the rules. Um, I don't really know the answer, to be honest. Okay, so let's go on to a far easier topic. Political (laughs) tribes and tribalism. COVID-19 is distracting us from um, what I suppose can loosely be called normal politics, although it's probably fair to say that politics on both sides of the Atlantic is not normal and hasn't been what we have grown up with knowing as normal for some time. But it certainly hasn't gone away. The tribalism and the sort of so-called culture wars that we've touched on before in this podcast have been sort of big and recurring themes of politics in recent years. Um, Corey, you're quite well placed to uh, maybe (laughs) talk about some of these things. So what is it that makes people so tribal when it comes to politics. And is this just a sort of a recent phenomenon or is this uh, actually far more deep-seated than people often give it credit for? Yeah, so I just had a paper come out a few months ago called Tribalism and War and Peace, the Nature and Evolution of Ideological Epistemology and Its Significance for Modern Social Science, the longest title ever. I don't know why we did that. But the the paper argues that tribalism, and we're not the first ones to make this argument. Plenty of people have said it before. I think it's right um, that tribalism evolved because uh, due to like a evolutionary history of intergroup conflict. So human social groups would confront other human social groups. They would war and whichever group would win would take the land and resources uh, a lot of the time kill the other group so it was really important for people to work together efficiently effectively within groups and one way of facilitating that is by having um, humans be highly group loyal so 
caring a lot about the group's goals, being willing to sacrifice for the group's goals, um, and, you know, really committing your identity to that group. And the reason that politics, I think, brings out this, um, this really, this, this, this sort of fundamental feature of humanity, of human psychology, the reason I think politics brings it out is because political disputes in so many ways actually resemble war context. So most of the time we're not actually killing other people, thankfully, but the stakes are quite similar. So you're fighting over resources and status and power, uh, who gets to make the laws, who do the laws benefit. Um, so this sort of naturally triggers these tribal tendencies in us because the, the situation is actually quite similar. Um, so now you have different we, you call them political tribes in the U.S. We have Democrats and Republicans, but all different countries have their own individual units and they kind of compete against one another as though they're at war. Haven't we seen, in a way, a decline in tribalism? So in the UK, famously in the 1950s, Labour and the Conservative parties took well over 90% of all votes cast. But now party politics is sort of massively fragmented. So isn't this actually a decline in tribalism? I mean, that's a good question. And I think the UK has probably done a better job than the United States um, because we really have this pretty hard two-party system and that's the way it goes. Um, so I, I'm not aware of data on on changes over time in the UK. In the US, it seems to have gotten increasingly worse over time. Um, so there are discussions about polarization and Democrats hate Republicans more than they ever have and Republicans hate Democrats more than they ever have. And this just seems to be growing. Um, so though it seems if you could somehow blur these individual tribes and make the identities harder and more nuanced, um, then, then you might be able to tone that down a little bit. Um, but that certainly doesn't seem to be happening everywhere. <laughs> so is it more about a new way of doing politics, not that um, the, the, the way of being tribal has changed, that it's become more absolutist within those tribes that people hold to? Um, you mean like, I'm, I'm not sure I quite understand the question. No, that, that, and that's quite all right. So um, whilst in the past people were um, in two, so this is the, the, the UK context, I think probably more so than the American one, though there is some potential sort of read across. In, well, in the UK in the 1950s, this is the example because of the, the very high um, voter concentration amongst the two main parties. Whilst now that's fragmented into many different tribes, the and I think the read across it with the US is that in the UK there was probably more cross-party working, or perhaps not necessarily cross-party working in sort of bipartisanship in the way that you would get, say, Biden um, as sort of career, but a more willingness to not see the other as morally inferior mm -hmm. and that it's that hardening of the tribalism is perhaps the new way of doing things. Is that something that resonates with your experience of looking at the data in this area? 
So you mean by hardening, you, you mean like the moralization aspect of it? Like, mm, yeah, absolutely. That it's, um, the, the other side is seen much more as beyond the pale, whereas, and this mm-hmm. may be a sort of romanticization of the past. And if it is, then I apologize for getting it wrong, but it seems <laughs> to me that in the past, people were more willing to say that. Mice, I have a particular viewpoint. This other person, I disagree with them. I think they're bloody stupid or, you know, all of these things. But I don't think they're evil. Mm-hmm. And now it seems that there is a, a sort of a... Mo- and that the hardness is that not just, you know, I believe in a larger state and a more redistributive mechanism and, you know, you over there believe in a smaller state and more people should make their own decisions with their own money and their own freedom. Um, but now it's become very entrenched in terms of my poli- belief in um, a larger state means that you hate homeless people and you want them all to die. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely more of that now. Uh, it seems that this isn't about disagreements and values. It's not even about disagreements and facts. It's that the other people are bad people. Um, I think you're right about the party crossover. I just glanced at this paper the other day, so I might get it wrong, but I think it was looking at from the 1970s to, I'm going to say like the 2010s, um, um, that people who were in the U.S. who identified as Democrat and Republican were more inconsistent in their voting behavior than independence in 2010. So these people um, who actually declared a party loyalty weren't that loyal, whereas people who now aren't even declaring a party loyalty are really loyal. Um, so it does seem that that has uh, increased, at least maybe in the past, I guess that would be the past 50 years. Yeah. Steve, do you want to, to uh, sort of come in on this, whether, for example, um this tribalism looks set to sort of to stay after COVID, or is the possibility that there might be a sort of this might be a unifying experience that maybe makes people sort of chill out a little bit? Um, I think this is a tough question. I think one thing to go back and say is, that, of course, in the UK, while we haven't got the kind of partisan divides you might have in the states. We have had this big Brexit divide that's been a very cultural mm-hmm. thing. that We've talked about this lots and lots on the pod, and that that's a very emotional kind of thing that is maybe an analogy to the kind of uh, Democrat-Republican uh, partisanship in, in the U.S. And the reasons for it weren't, aren't, haven't, gone, haven't gone away. We're going to have seen uh, those kind of trends of people getting more emotive, more moralistic. Um, uh, that's not going to disappear. The one thing I think that we're seeing at the moment with the COVID crisis is that people are kind of rallying around the flag because they're focused on things that we do kind of agree on. So in the UK, people do agree on the importance of the National Health Service, for example. And so when we're focused on that and not the kind of more moralistic, more sort of divisive issues of, the, of that kind, um, I think we are going to see less tribalism. But as soon as we get back to those kind of things, and that could happen in the fallout of COVID, such as um, who pays for all this, that kind of question, um, is there a young versus old, open versus closed debate to become more about those kind of values? I think if that happens, we are going to see it just um, arise again in different forms. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, or not, I'm breaking the rule. <laughs> um, 
but no, like to hear the, the UK side, like the U S has actually been quite, um, the response has been very political. So there, I'm sure you guys heard about there were protests when you're getting a lot of, um, right-leaning states and among right-leaning people, they are more concerned about the economy and liberals are more concerned about, I guess, um, the death rates. So it's become just the next big political issue, which is not surprising at all. <laughs> um, um, so like, it almost feels the same here. It's just, we're fighting about something new. And then whenever this is all over, we'll just return to the old things that we were fighting about, or we'll find something new to fight about. Like there's always something, uh, and it like, we're just really good at politicizing like every single thing that we face. Um, but perhaps it has been better in the UK in that way. So maybe actually for, for the UK, this could be a bit of a, Hey, look, we all have some shared values. <laughs> we have some things in common and that actually could, could be helpful. So talking about um, some of the sort of politi- politicization, how much does this feed into something we touched on earlier, which is the call out culture and um, what, what's known as virtue signaling. And it might be worth, uh, if whoever of you would like to come in to answer that first, would uh, just give us a definition of virtue signaling for a start. Should I have a go at virtue signaling? I I think actually Corey touched on that earlier, is that when people uh, do say, I mean, typically it's online, but um, criticise others or... Uh, in, in a way that actually isn't really aimed at the person, but aimed at demonstrating that they they are uh, holier than thou or um, a part of the group or um, well, however you might put it. Yeah, I think one reason we see this more now is because we have all of these conversations happening publicly online and particularly with people that we don't know and who we'll never meet. So like, you're not going to walk up to someone on the street and be like, you didn't recycle that (laughs) because they could punch you in the face. (laughs) But if you do it on Twitter, um, there aren't really any major risks and the potential for some kind of benefit, like other people are like, Oh, you're a person who recycles. You care about the environment. You can get a little benefit and have almost no cost. So we do seem to be seeing this behavior more often now. I mean, in terms of the politicization, politicization, (laughs) that is a hard word to say. Um, I I mean, I think in the U.S. it it just started with Trump, right? So it was just the people who like Trump supported the way he was handling the situation and the people who don't support Trump disapprove of the way he's handling the situation. Was that inevitable? I don't know. Um, I saw a graph recently and it was just (laughs) like approval of how Trump's handling COVID and like Republicans, 80% approve Democrats, 20%, something like that. But that's what you get with almost anything Trump does. You know, Republicans approve of everything he does and Democrats disapprove of everything he does. So once he takes a stance on something, it really sets the tone for what the parties are going to think. Okay, well, let's spend the last few minutes of this on a bit more of a positive note. (laughs) How on earth do we get people to better understand and coexist with each other? 
especially those people that they disagree with? This is such a um, hard question to answer. But the thing that I think Corey mentioned earlier that really struck me was that how much of the sort of polarisation tribalism is based on perception of kind of, are you in the same group as me? Are you someone like me? So I wonder if part of the answer comes from how can we get people to see, also within a nation, let's say, to see themselves more in the same in the same group. And like maybe we're seeing with mm. some of the kind of community responses to this crisis, there's some of that happening. Um, how on earth politicians or governments can kind of create that um, in a positive way, I don't know, but maybe that's a place to start. Yeah, one thing people say is that groups need a common enemy to unite. So, like, Democrats and Republicans could come together if they all... Did- hated someone else collectively (laughs) um and the same way to go go for the world like i suspect if we found that there was like another there were aliens on some other planet and they didn't like earth then the countries would unite in a way we've never seen before um that's not a good solution because you don't want to create an enemy in order to have harmony um but it's actually just a really difficult problem and so many people are working on it and they there haven't been great solutions honestly yet can it be something else? So at the moment we've got a virus, um, you could have climate change. Like we've had wars on various things in the past that haven't been on. I know we've had war on terror, which is people, but we've had war on drugs. Maybe it wasn't a positive example, but it's not people. I think we've had the war on wanton things at different points. Is there, does it work if it's not uh, another competing kind of tribe or, or, or not? I think it probably could if people had a shared goal that would help. Um, the thing is they often tend to disagree about what the goal should be, <laughs> what is good and what is bad. Um, so if, if there were something everyone agreed on and it sounds like, yeah, maybe in the UK, this could be something that unites people there. Um, then that could be something, but and also how horrible that something like this would have to happen for people to unite. But, um, yeah, that potentially could work. Um, but you do need everyone to kind of agree on the goal. Well, I can just say, Steve, fantastic work setting up our next podcast where we're hopefully going to talk about how you build shared stories and the value of them. <clears throat> but for now and until next time, Dr. Corey Clark, thank you so much. It's been fascinating, brilliant. Steve, thank you very much as well. Thank you very much to all of our listeners. Hopefully there is more than one of you. This is the <laughs> Man's Land podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have. Thank you so much for your time.